0: Welcome to Q&A Selling Online, with answers to questions about creating an online empire, promoting products, or building a brand. Your host, private label and e-commerce entrepreneur, Quinn Amorm.
1: Welcome back to the show, my friends. This is Quinn, and today I have with me Micah Frame. Micah runs an accounting firm that focuses exclusively on online businesses just like us. He also has written... Two best-selling textbooks on Amazon, which have sold tens of thousands of copies. His clients are typically six, seven-figure online businesses and have millions of YouTube and Facebook subscribers between them. Uh, his advice has been featured in Times, Forbes, NASDAQ, and quite a few other m- major publications. He actually even had a recommendation uh, from Ty Lopez uh, for his books micah i'm glad to have you here how's it going
0: pleasure to be here man thanks for having me
1: man it's uh it's a pleasure to have you here you know what i went through where all the places where you've been featured you know times forbes uh nasdaq these are huge places and then i saw and i kind of got me <laughs> excited i don't know why but Ty lopez was recommending your book uh how did
0: that happen? Yeah, that was a pleasant surprise when that happened. It was pretty awesome, especially if you live in this space the way that we do. Yeah. And that's just completely
1: organic, right? You did not reach out to him. It was.
0: No, it was crazy. I had a client of mine. I didn't even. First, I had one that I was on his Snapchat. It was just a photo of the book with him holding it. Then a year or two later, I found out it was actually on his permanent list of recommended books. So. That was a surprise of a um, welcome one, to be sure. But.
1: Yeah, that is super cool. So you are um, CPA. Yep. And you focus on online businesses, which is something that, of course, uh, we love. That's why uh, I have this podcast, and that's why everybody is listening to it, is because they're, they like online businesses or they want to start one. So is this... A passion for you, uh accounting and online businesses?
0: Yeah, so the way we got started, it was just a, a local regular CPA firm. And I ended up just picking up a couple online businesses. At first, it was a few Amazon sellers, then I picked out who ended picked up who ended up being my business partner in a lot of things, a guy named Adam Auger where they have Iowa Basketball TV, which that's almost 2 million subscribers on its own. I think their Facebook page has a similar amount. So we started picking up just a couple of them. And then from those key people, especially Adam, we'd get referred to other online businesses. And it was really cool and really fun because even though they're more challenging to for y'all to be successful, to make money online, it's harder than if you've just got a brick and mortar shop. You've got this worldwide demand, but also worldwide competition. There's hurdles you all have to deal with that other businesses don't. But if you nail it, if you're good at it, the reward is so high and the ceiling is almost non-existent. Hmm. So that was really, really fun. And then what we kept hearing from what started off as just a handful of clients when we'd get referred to new people, the story we heard every single time was really glad you understand my business. My previous CPA did not understand what I did. These guys were reasonably competent at taxes. It sound like, sounded like, but it didn't seem like they had any concept of the underlying core business and what y'all were doing.
1: Yeah. I And I can feel their their pain because I've been through the same. And like we talked off the air, I st- many, many years ago, I did study accounting, and I can tell you something, when I studied it, it was accounting, financial calculations, economics, and it was a bunch of things that I, like I told you, I really hate now. Um, there was never a computer or a screen involved, right? Oh, although man. although I, um, it, <laughs> it was a long time ago, but... Still, that's miserable. Exactly there was never a screen and it was a bit of chalk and a green or a blackboard and you know and that's that was accounting and maybe that's why I hated it because if there was any online involved it just would have been so exciting and uh,
0: yeah, if you have a com- if it, we didn't have computer programs nowadays I don't know that I'd be doing what I'm doing if I needed to have an abacus and just a little um, grid paper. Yeah. Up all the numbers.
1: That's exactly how it was. So uh, you know, uh, a short story uh, here. Uh, I should be focusing on you, but this is kind of something that I never even told the audience. When uh, when it went time to sign up, and this was like, uh, and and I was studying in Europe. And when it comes to grade ten, the grade ten is where you decide what you're going to be when you grow up. Okay. And then you go to you register, and from grade. Uh, 10, 10, 11, 12, you get the basics of it, and then you go from there after grade 12 to uh, deeper into what you picked. And I didn't care for school whatsoever, so I asked my sister, since you have to go there, register yourself, pick something for me. And she's like, what do you want? I'm like, well, uh, my my words were, uh, I'm going to be very rich, so... Uh, I want to be able to do uh, work with numbers. So something to do with numbers. So I, (laughs) she signed me up for
0: this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's crazy. And I I have no passion for it. So I'm glad you do. And I'm glad you maybe it's because you're doing it at the right time. Right. With now technology and
0: all. Yeah. Yeah. 30 years ago, there's not a chance that I would be doing what I'm doing now.
1: Yeah. Cool. And uh, yes, very exciting that you you are into do, dealing with online businesses and Amazon FBA businesses. And do you work with only U.S. like LLCs and all that or uh, people that are internationally selling in the U.S.?
0: We do it with both. Obviously, we do more with the U.S. LLCs because then you have a true tax, You're U.S. taxpayers, <laughs> you're having to deal with tax obligations. So people who are based in the US, we deal with them more, but increasingly it seems like we're dealing with international sellers who want to sell into the US Mm -hmm. because there's no requirement if you're a US, if you're an overseas seller selling into the US, you don't have to have an LLC to do that. You don't inherently have a U.S. tax obligation just because you're selling into the U.S., which is a huge misconception that we end up fighting over and over and over again every time we have conversations with, client, with our international clients, at least wh- when we fir- first pick them up. Mm-hmm. But, so we deal with both. And for the ones who don't have a U.S. tax, but for the international clients, we do end up, if they want to have an LLC, It's not a requirement, but there are some good reasons to do that. It's easier. You can have a bank account more easily. Mm -hmm. If you've got an exit strategy on when you sell your Amazon business, sometimes there's a preference on buying a U.S. LLC versus the remnants of a foreign corporation and the assets from that. Sometimes people like buying from what seems to be a U.S.-based company instead of an overseas company. So sometimes international sellers want to do that anyway, in which case there are some filings that we need to we need to structure things properly to make sure you don't end up with a tax burden unnecessarily.
1: And then when it comes to things like if uh, somebody that is not in the U.S. and they want to want to create an LLC for whatever reason, uh, is there a preference to where to create this? And and like, why should we pick a different state?
0: There's a really huge difference. And it seems like the favorite state changes about every three years. It's whichever state is doing a more effective marketing campaign because mm. for probably a decade or two, it was always Delaware corporations, Delaware corporations, they're the best. Then Nevada did a big push five or 10 years ago. And now you're hearing about Wyoming ones and There's nothing wrong with any of those. I'm not saying those are bad decisions, but it doesn't make a huge difference because for the most part, the fees are relatively uniform across them and the privacy is there's not huge differences. So if you're a U.S.-based seller and you're literally here, we always tell people just make an entity where you live. Don't do. Don't live in Virginia or live in Texas and make one in Nevada. Just make one in the state you live. If you're overseas, it's it's really six one half a dozen the other where you choose.
1: Cool, Micah. From from somebody that is outside and starting out, uh, they may not have much experience with the way tax works in different states. Right. For sure. example, uh, even me that had. A tiny bit of knowledge starting out, knowing that you have different states that all have different tags. It's uh, I don't know sometimes a bit overwhelming, right? It's a nightmare. So uh, how do people do that? I guess uh, the easy way would be like hire
0: (laughs) hire a CPA and get them to do it for you, right? Yeah, the the easiest way to do it now, and it's really nice that these services exist. Especially, I'm thinking specifically for sales tax, mm-hmm. because unless you have what they call true physical nexus, where you've got a business presence, a physical presence in a state, you, you very, very rarely end up with an income tax obligation to that state if you're not physically living or working there. Mm-hmm. But Amazon sellers have to deal with a lot more as what you'd call economic nexus, where you're selling into that state. So even though you don't have a physical presence because you're selling into those states, the courts have ruled that they are allowed to collect sales tax from you, or you're required to collect it and then remit it to them.
1: And that is because Amazon is warehouse warehousing our products in that state, correct?
0: Not even necessarily, that, that used to be the reasoning and the reason why Amazon kept its physical presence to like three different states because it didn't want to deal with sales tax obligations. Mm. A couple years back there have been there have been several court rulings that have strengthened the state's ability to collect sales tax even if there's no mm. physical presence. It's just a matter of the fact that you're selling into that state is enough now. So because of that, it's a big pain especially if you're a small seller because you could be selling a little bit once into North Dakota and then not sell there for another 24 months. What's really helpful for this is tax jar or an equivalent service because they are aware of what the threshold, most of these states have it to where if you sell one unit in, they're not really super worried about you collecting a sales tax and registering there. So they've got minimum thresholds for when you need to start doing that. So TaxDar is aware of that. They automate a lot of it for you. It's And this will change. By the time this gets published, the rate will probably change. But I want to say it's in the neighborhood of like 20 bucks a state per month right now. And there are a few TaxDar competitors who I think are in a similar price range. So even though that's not cheap, compared to the price of paying up, semi-competent accountant to do those filings for you every month. It's just a a fraction of what you'd be paying someone to do. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, You mentioned the nexus.
0: So what exactly does that mean, nexus? So nexus is the term they use to where, at least in the tax world, that's when you have either a physical or economic, you've got some sort of business presence to where you are, a state is you have a tax obligation to a certain state or municipality.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So for, like I said earlier, for income tax purposes, you look at more at physical presence. You look at where you're living, where you're working, what's. And so if you are living and working in a state, there's a very good chance that you have a income tax obligation to that state. Mm-hmm the new court rulings and this concept of economic nexus where it's a little bit more not ethereal but just a, it's it's almost feels more hypothetical cuz it's it, you can't pinpoint it as much but economic nexus where you are generating the sales tax obligation because of the business you are shipping to that state is what amazon sellers are having to deal with more and more as these the laws are evolving
1: did. So what are the obligations to somebody like with an LLC from the US and they want to sell elsewhere, let's say Amazon, and they're selling on Amazon Canada?
0: Oh, now, who are they paying this tax to? Well, I'm talking more just when we talk about economic nexus, that's a purely US-based term. Mm-hmm. And that's... At least in my realm of expertise, I'm sure it's a term that other people use in other countries. Mm -hmm. But so far as I'm talking about this discussion, it's more talking about states in the U.S. and their ability to to collect this tax. So for a U.S. seller selling into Canada, there are, I'm sure there's some equivalent of that or something else, but that's where I'd refer people to a Canadian (laughs) Amazon tax expert.
1: And if it's the other way around, if it was for a Canadian or anywhere else selling in the U.S., now we would have to deal with all the, the U.S. nexus, correct?
0: Yeah, you deal with economic nexus on the so sales tax obligations. The big misconception that we deal with is people think that if you're selling into the U.S., that you automatically, that's it is by definition what you'd call U.S. sourced income because it's income from the U.S. What they conflate that with and they confuse it with is another term you'd call effectively connected income. And the difference there is that even though a Canadian selling into the U.S. is getting income from the U.S., that doesn't mean you have U.S. income tax obligations. Even if you're a Canadian who owns an LLC, in the U.S. And that, L- and that LLC is selling into the U.S., you don't end up with income tax obligations just because you're selling into the country. And you'll read, if you look online, I'd say 80 to 90% of the information you'll find is going to say the exact opposite because pe- people have misread the rules. They haven't looked at the underlying concepts and the regulations, but it's been pretty well solidified if you look at the the court cases, that just that simple act of shipping into the US doesn't generate an income tax obligation or a requirement to file a US income tax return.
1: Okay, so in other words, are you saying
0: that I could sell from Canada into the US and not pay tax? You would you'd have to collect sales tax to the states, you would not pay income tax to the to the United States. Okay, gotcha.
1: All right. And when it comes to Trump's tariffs, that it was, uh, I guess, not too long ago, everybody was talking about that. So how does that in, uh, affect us? And is this good? Is this bad? There has to be some good in it.
0: I mean, the good is if you buy into the concept that tariffs are going to protect U.S. manufacturing, it's more of an economic policy thing. Mm-hmm. But if you, so I'm trying to think of potential good there. Theoretically, if you're a U.S. seller and these tariffs are making it more difficult for foreign sellers to sell on Amazon into the U.S., you've got a price advantage. And the true, the same would be true if you are a U.S. seller trying to sell into Canada. Your goods are or. Canada, he hasn't targeted as much as some other countries that might not be the best example. But if you're selling it into a country where these tariffs are much higher, U.S. goods are going to be less competitive compared to those domestic goods where we don't have these retaliatory tariffs that you're dealing with. So that's, that's the most baseline for what actual sellers are dealing with. In terms of whether or not it's good or bad, that's going to take a couple more years. And it depends on which side of the political aisle and which, which pundit you listen to, whether or not this is horrible or this is the greatest thing to ever happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So w- when it comes to selling different markets, I, w- I was wondering if there's, sometimes there's, you know, those hidden gems that uh, a lot of people don't talk about that could give us a break and discounts. And for example, I uh, found out recently that when you... Start selling in Japan. You have a certain break where uh, they'll only start charging you taxes after you sell sixty thousand dollars or something like that. So the first sixty is is free. Is there any breaks like that in in the U.S.?
0: Again, I'm I'm excluding international sellers because most international sellers, you have if you have a U.S. entity, you create an LLC, mm-hmm. you run into filing obligations, you have to file forms, but you don't end up paying a bill with that. So for U.S. sellers living, selling into the U.S., there are no specific tax breaks specific to Amazon sellers. The biggest thing that we end up talking to people about is shifting your lens a little bit just to realize that it's not just the more things are deductible than you might think there are it's just shifting your lens to think of things that may have some minor personal utility but have a huge impact or are necessary for your business so one one of the most obvious ones a go to is for online businesses you're spending for not everyone but a lot of people you're spending most of your time at home in front of the computer you're you're not going anywhere but if you have to run to the post office you're going to pick up supplies you're going to do anything out around town business miles you drive are deductible and that the rate that you get every year varies based on the cost of gas and other factors but this year it's 58 and a half cents per mile that you drive which is pretty generous
1: yeah
0: so if you're having to make any of your own shipments, if you're having to pick up samples from the post office, whatever. It's not unusual at all to end up with a couple thousand miles, even if you're mostly at home doing stuff
1: mm-hmm. so
0: that can add up. You can take the business percentage of your home Internet bill, the business percentage of your cell phone bill. If you need to buy a new charger for your laptop. You might use the laptop 10% of the time for personal, but that is a business charger at this point. So it's just a, it's a matter of small, paying attention in terms of pure tax deduction, just paying attention to the totality of your spending and the totality of your activities and making sure you're not misclassifying things as personal that are business or just not realizing that things like mileage are deductible activities.
1: hmm stuff like dinner meetings with customers
0: yeah absolutely yeah they limit you to being able to deduct 50 percent of the cost of the meal but still something yeah yeah so how about one
1: that i remember there was something that came out i don't know if it was last year or two years ago when it comes to buying inventory in december a lot yeah. of people wanted to buy a lot of inventory in December and then deduct it
0: the next year. Was, yeah, there, which, was there any change to that? Well, that's if people are deducting the inventory they bought in December, they're very likely misclassifying the purchase to begin with because the way that for tax purposes you calculate your cost of goods sold, your your actual expense amount you can take is you do beginning inventory, You add in whatever purchases you have for the year, and then you subtract out whatever is there at the end of the year. So if December, let's say I start with $10,000 of inventory and I buy a bunch throughout the year. But because I bought $100,000 of it in December 31st, that $100,000 is not deductible in that year. Until it sells until it sells so if you've got i'm trying to think of just some dummy numbers if you start out with fifty thousand dollars of inventory you buy a hundred and then at the end of the year you have fifty your expense is that hundred thousand but if you start out with ten thousand dollars you buy a hundred but then you've got fifty left over we have to back out that difference between the ten thousand that you started with and the forty and the fifty thousand that you have at the end. Mm-hmm. So what we're able to deduct is $60,000 instead. That's your expense for that year. So those fluctuations year over at year over year can make a big difference and either show phantom income if you have a big inventory increase or phantom deductions if you have this big decrease from where you started.
1: Gotcha. And now uh, I remembered something else I wanted to ask you it's about The advertising costs and, you know, outsourcing costs, uh, designers, uh, you know, uh, 3D renderings, all that stuff. Of course, those are deductible as well, right? Absolutely. Is there any margin for the things that we can't sometimes account for? Uh, Let's say if you hired a freelancer to get
0: to do your 3D renderings, but you didn't get invoiced for that. So, are you saying you hired them and they just you didn't end up having to pay them? No, no, you still had to pay them. You just didn't get um, oh. a receipt from it. Oh, no. well, that that doesn't matter. I mean, ideally, yes, you'd like an invoice. In the unlikely event that you get audited, it's nice to have a thicker stack of paper proving what it was for. But if you have the paper trail of most of the time you're going to have conversations in writing you're going to have proof that you spent the money then we'd still deduct it it might just be a little bit more of a pain if you did get audited defending what and explaining what it was for okay gosh because like yeah in in the
1: online world that does happen sometimes right there's a va or a freelancer that uh they're working and they have not incorporated wherever they are from, and, but they still do the work for you. Yeah, yeah. And
0: you pay them through PayPal, and it's a little—you have the conversation over Facebook Messenger, you pay them over PayPal. It's a little informal compared to the way you might hire someone else. Yeah.
1: Exactly, exactly. So
0: you you created
1: uh, Micah Frame. Although, well, that, that's your name, but Micah Frame uh, is your your CPA business. Yep. And how many are in your team right now?
0: We've got, it's a team of three right now. Plus we've got about three freelancers, contractors that we work with. So six full time, or six total, three full timers.
1: Nice. And that is uh, just micaframe.com. Is that right?
0: Um, that's that's one of the websites. The micaframe.com is where we're sending people more for the online stuff than for the, the more basic local stuff. We have another website called framecpa.com.
1: Gotcha. So does that mean you also have, if somebody locally that has brick-and-mortar businesses, they can also come and visit you, of course?
0: Well, Yeah, we, we still do that all the time. It's just more as we've been specializing and getting busier and busier with the online stuff. It's what a person on my team will deal with the local businesses where we stay very, or we, I mean, I stay very online centric nowadays.
1: Yeah. And when it comes to spreading the word about, about your services, what, what's the
0: way you do it? Do you, do you advertise? How do you find your own customers? For, The online space has been a learning experience in terms of the marketing of that. For the local stuff, we've relied really heavily on SEO, done email marketing, a little bit of social media. The, The online stuff, especially because we charge, most accountants don't understand the space and can't do what we do the way that we do it. So we charge a premium for that. So finding the right clients who are online, making the right amount of money, value the service, We more than I would like at this point, We get it's just a lot of word of mouth on the online side, which is good, but obviously that's not what you ever want to fully rely on for any business is just referrals. But. Yeah,
1: and uh, you know what? I often used to, I mean, often used to, hear the words premium as, okay, this is going to cost me more. But uh, to be completely honest, uh, probably four years ago, uh, something happened and I changed services and I got this premium service. Now, my return or what I didn't have to pay was, I believe, like six times better than it had been before. So that premium, actually, the only time it cost me was up front when I paid. But it saved me like six times what I would have paid with the non-premium.
0: Well, there's, a, there's an old cliche about buy it nice or buy it twice. Mm-hmm. And the longer we've been in business, the older I get, the more and more I believe that. Because every time I've ever tried to, you know, and I put this in air quotes, to save a little bit, It always seems to come back to bite me where the service it's not done correctly. It costs me money. I have to get it redone by somebody else or buy a replacement product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. in In any sort of professional services, we are the experts in this little world of tax. But if it comes to legal questions, we we've got some architects. We or we've got some properties, so have to pay architects. We pay contractors. Any anyone who's a gene. Their little scope of genius. There's no way you can compete with that. So yeah, it's. I'm in the same boat as you. Every year, I spend more and more money, but the return on the back end seems to be so much more than what it cost you at the beginning.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Buy it once, yeah. My dad used to say that too. I like to buy things once. So, Micah, what are some tips for people to like minimize their tax bill?
0: But we talked about a little bit on making sure you're viewing your expenses and your cash outflows appropriately and make and documenting those so you can deduct them. In the U.S., one of the biggest things we do that it's still it's funny because every interview I do, every conversation we ever have, it seems like we talk about this, but it's still done by a minority of people is having it to where you're set up correctly from a corporate tax standpoint. Yes. Because in the US, by default, if you're a single owner LLC, if you're a partnership, if you're a sole proprietor and it's just you and you don't have any entity, any profit you make in the business is subject to what they call self-employment tax. And that's the employer and the employee halves of Social Security and Medicare, which is what funds our retirement and some of our, our welfare programs. Mm-hmm. And that's 15.3% on any dollar of profit. So if you're making $100,000 of profit before you even pay income tax, you're losing 15 grand right there. So there are some ways around that to where if we have you taxed as an S corporation, then that mitigates the amount of social security and Medicare you pay. Hmm. So in an S corp setup we give you the lowest salary that we can reasonably justify for your profession. And what a reasonable salary is, is a really nebulous and poorly defined term by the IRS. What we usually look at, there's about three main factors. One is the profession. So if you're a medical doctor versus you're a tradesman, there's different baseline levels you look at geographic region. To where living in New York City or the San Francisco Bay area, a reasonable salary is different than if you're in West Virginia or or some sort of rural area. And you also look at the profitability of the business. So let's say you're a painter. Well if you're a painter who's not making a ton of money, then a $20,000 salary might be reasonable. But if you're a painter who owns a a company that made a million dollars last year, that $20,000 salary doesn't seem reasonable anymore. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so for the purposes of this example, let's say you have an S-Corp, we pay, it's necessary, you still make a $100,000 profit, and we determine that it's necessary to pay you a a $50,000 salary. Your salary, you still pay Social Security and Medicare on that. So that ends up being a little under $8,000. I think it's $7,650. But the remaining $50,000 that is left over, which you can pay yourself as dividends or owner draws, distributions, whatever you want to call it, that is not subject to Social Security and Medicare anymore. Hmm. So on the same $100,000 profit, instead of paying $15,000, you end up paying about $7,500. So literally, in, in this example, cuts it in half. So especially for businesses, online businesses, this is super important. Where cash, and I think about Amazon businesses because in the early days, cash flow is so much worse mm-hmm. because you're having to order molds and samples, especially if you're doing a private label. To where, if we can have it to where we have an extra, whatever the number is. Let's say you made. $40,000 and we can cut that number in half. If we can have a couple thousand dollars minimum that we're able to throw at trying any sort of reinvestment, be it advertising, be it starting new products, that's so very valuable at any point in the business, especially when you're cash strapped at the very beginning. So there's there's
1: no way that a, a business that's generating a 100 grand profit per year
0: could pay a hundred thousand um, salary. Yeah, i wish that would be really really nice but no and again we anchor to the lowest if there's a range of what a reasonable salary is we try and anchor it to the low point in that but no they're not going to let you get away with nothing but we can still save a, we can't save a hundred percent of the social security and medicare but we can save a decent bit
1: exactly so mike how often do you have somebody that doesn't really know, I mean, I know this is going to be a big number, but how many people actually know their numbers, actually know their profit? Because I hear often somebody tell me, oh, uh, I'm getting 70% margins. And I'm like, well,
0: <laughs> <laughs> really? You're good on you, buddy. That's true, man.
1: Yeah, you know, 70% margins, just Amazon takes 15 of your gross. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so do you often see people that have no idea?
0: of their- I'd say I'd say that's the majority of the time. And Amazon sellers, I think, are a little better off because of the fact that just the ecosystem you're in and the reporting from Amazon, it doesn't give you the full picture, but it gives you at least a little bit more than is going to be. A, a, mm-hmm. The run-of-the-mill business is just going to have immediately available to them. Yes. Because for your run-of-the-mill business, all of those numbers and reports, aside from your Stripe account, maybe those are all being generated by you and require your input. Amazon gives you a little bit of it for for free, the, theoretically. Yes, but, you know, I'd say people who really know their numbers, it's maybe ten yeah. percent. It's and and even the ones who pay attention to it, you'll find things where it's there it's either a miscategorization or ju- they're reading they're structuring the reports wrong where you're getting stuff like you say oh yeah i'm making i got 99% yeah. margins <laughs> amazed at how much money i'm making and but then they're still losing money on the bottom line stuff that just doesn't make sense
1: yeah i, I i've heard before and of course i, I don't go any deeper with it cuz i know it's just uh miscommunication but i've heard people that have over 100 percent margins which really don't right. don't exist
0: they're paying they're paying you to take it <laughs> yeah
1: and i'm just okay you're confusing margins with roi or right or but yeah so it's it's incredible and and at the same time it's scary that a lot of people that when they're starting out and they don't know their numbers and that's one of my biggest pet peeves that They actually lose money and they think they're, they're, they're making profit. But when you add up, you know, your shippings, your fees, uh, taxes, everything that you got to pay and realize that you are actually, every time you sell something, you're losing Mm two or $3. Mm -hmm. And
0: yeah, I, I wish we could help them all, but it's right. And That's scary in any sort of business, let alone one where you're not retailers, but especially something where you have a cost, like you're saying, associated with every single sale. Not knowing your numbers isn't particularly forgivable if you're in a consulting business, but at least then you don't have these costs associated with every single transaction. So if you're selling on Amazon and aren't tracking that like a hawk, then there are people who get lucky. There are people who, you know, they have a good product and they get they get by in spite of that, but it's extremely dangerous going about it that way.
1: Yes. Yeah, and, and a, lo- a lot of people were lucky starting out uh, because of when they started, you know, 2014, 2015. If you start selling on Amazon, competition was not as big. So you okay. could sell... You know the uh, the wireless the wireless earbuds when they came out you could sell them for seventy dollars, right? Okay. Now they're nineteen,
0: right? right? Well, I had one client back in fourteen, and they they were a retailer, just a, a local one. But they figured out that there was something that wasn't being sold. It might have been compression stockings or something really <laughs> random, but there it wasn't really being sold on Amazon at the point. And that year. They had $100,000 of sales with crazy margin on it because there was nothing else. Then the next year, I don't even think it was a full year. I think it was six months later. It went to like nothing. I think they might have sold five grand that whole period. So that's what's a little funny. And especially when you see these Amazon courses where, of course, with marketing, Mm -hmm. there's always a little bit of inflating to it. But people... You can still make amazing money on Amazon, but it's funny because a lot of times the marketing materials, it seems like they're talking about the results and the tricks that you could do 10 mm-hmm. years ago, not the competition we're dealing with today.
1: Absolutely. And you know what's what's funny? Oh my God, um, those compression socks, I did, <laughs> I did those years ago. <laughs> I did those years ago. And it was completely incredible. It was a nineteen hundred percent markup. Wow! Yeah, nineteen hundred percent markup. Nice. <laughs> and they would sell uh, by the hour. We wouldn't measure the the daily sales or monthly sales. It was by the hour selling. Wow! And uh, I don't I don't have that product anymore. I don't sell a single one. And there was uh, you know different colors and everything, and basically they all did the same. There were plantar fasciitis uh, compression socks. And they were actually sleeves. They weren't full socks. They were like your toes would be exposed and everything. And yeah, I I don't sell them anymore because of that. There is no more money to be made in there unless, I don't know, unless you have this huge, very well known brand and something unique out of it. But yeah, I I gave that one up as well. (laughs) So uh, before I let you go, I wanna ask you, what are your favorite tools when uh, working with anything that you do online? Uh, you already mentioned TaxJar, is that one of them?
0: Yeah, ta- TaxJar is absolutely one of my favorites. For most of our clients, we end up liking QuickBooks Online, but for, for our online clients, we've had better, z- for our Amazon clients, we've had better luck with Zero it seems to it seems to integrate better to a2x which a2x is an accounting integration that pulls without for most accounting softwares they're functioning mostly as check registers so mm-hmm. they're just pulling in what's on your credit card and what's on your bank statement and classifying them with amazon y'all have all these sort of phantom transactions that are never going to hit your yeah. bank account so a2X, what it attempts to do is it pulls in all of those transactions that never hit the bank account, so you can account for Amazon fees and you know yeah. your FBI fees, storage fees, all that stuff, to get a truer idea of what your margins actually are. So zero integrating with A2X, that's one of our favorite things when we see clients using those.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. So there was, um, uh, what's it called?
0: There's one, I have a,
1: a business that is not online and there's a tool, you mentioned it. Um, QuickBooks I, Online. Yeah, QuickBooks Online. And that does connect to the business bank account and it tries to categorize, I don't know if it's uh, incoming or outgoing, but it tries to categorize. Yeah, some those. Of the- Yeah, it tries to yes exactly Try
0: brick and mortar business that's not bad that works well for the amazon businesses it's a little tougher for those transactions to be even if they're not inaccurate as it relates to the bank statement it's not accounting for all the stuff going on on the amazon side before you get the deposit from from amazon in your bank account
1: yeah and if it's a reoccurring one you can actually go in by hand, categorize it correctly so the next time it, it,
0: it yeah absolutely it starts that QuickBooks Online zero a lot of those they're trying they try to learn and get more intelligent over time where they learn that if you're going to Exxon that's gas or stuff like that yes
1: yeah yeah so Micah let everybody know if they want to work with you hear more from you uh, where can they find you
0: okay. um, if you want to reach out you can go to Frame oba.com that's for frame online business accounting.com you can also email me at micaframe at framecpa.com
1: cool i'll have this on the show notes and for those of you that are not driving right now if you're listening to this frame is f-r-a-i-m
0: Yep, it is spelled rather stupidly so
1: Cool. Micah, I'll have all of these on the show notes so people can check you out and follow you, and uh, I will as well. So I have your YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Sweet. Awesome. Awesome. Micah, thank you so much. Uh, we'll stay in touch. All right. Awesome. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. You too.